Hi, I'm Anna Rosa Parker. And I'm Daniel Lamb, and this is Artist Inclusive, the podcast for ambitious artists who want to find clarity, community, and creative success. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us on Artist Inclusive today. Anna and I are so excited to have this conversation with you. We've been really looking forward to it. Glad you're here today. Thank you. I'm also looking forward to it. So for listeners who who don't know you and all of your awesomeness, I want to get a little bit of background on you. So before that, before you became prominent in the world of dance and before you were chosen to attend the Alvin Ailey American Dance Center, you were studying chemistry in college, right? Yeah, chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So can you talk a little bit about how you were looking at art practice and academics at that phase of your life? Was chemistry like something you were really passionate about or was it like a backup plan? Yeah, chemistry was a passion. I mean, I love math. I love science. I had some really good teachers. And my father has a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Michigan. So it was always kind of assumed myself as the oldest son that I would go and become a scientist. I remember my father saying very clearly, there are not enough black men in the sciences, so you'll be a scientist. And so I was going to be a scientist. And I like science, so it made sense. So I worked really hard, and I graduated top 10 in my class, number seven. And I got into Columbia University and the University of Michigan. And I wanted to go to New York, Ivy League school. And my parents didn't want me in New York. So I went begrudgingly to U of M, which is also a great school, but I was really miserable. And my first chemistry class kind of changed my mind. It was a room full of a 1,000 students. And the professor was way down in, the front of the, in front of the space and was kind of rambling off about the stuff and writing on the chalkboard. And I was so disappointed. All the problem solving and engaging I had, I had had with chemistry in high school was not there. And I still managed to, I think it was at the top of the class for the first semester. And I thank God that Alvin Ailey came to Detroit that year for a master class. So to your question, I... Liked dance, it was for fun, but I did not know you could make a career at it. I didn't have no, I didn't even think about people getting paid to dance. It was something that I did for fun. And I trained while I was at University of Michigan at the Sylvia School of Dance. Leanne King was my teacher, Leanne King. And it was for, for fun, having no idea that I could actually, that I was actually quite talented. So when I took the audition, no, sorry, the master class for Alvin Ailey, I felt like I was home. It just felt like I was moving and the music and the other dancers. And it was a ballet dance technique called Horton, designed by Lester Horton, which is the kind of foundation technique of Alvin Ailey. And it's a kind of combination of ballet and modern gram, all these things. And a woman there, which I knew who she was, she gave me an article that said, she said, there's an audition tomorrow for Alvin Ailey School. You should go. I looked at the article. I got scared. and thought, well, that could be fun. I went home, just like a movie, on the couch, get, looking at the article, you know, being uncomfortable, thinking, dreaming, and going, well, I'll go and see what happens. Well, I went to the audition, and she called me up, Denise Jefferson, and may she rest in peace. She was the director of the Ailey School at the time. It, it turned out to be a mentor of mine. She said, I see on your application that you are a chemistry major. And I said, Yes. She said, you're at the University of Michigan. It's a great school. I said, yes. She goes, well, that, I said, and how bad do you want to, she goes, how bad do you want to dance? And I said, of course, like the movies, more than anything, <laughs> I want to dance more than anything. <laughs> she goes, well, a chemistry degree is a very big deal. So think about it. But if you decide to come, you're welcome to join us. We'd love to have you in New York City. And she offered me a place in the Ailey School. So then I had to tell my parents. To my parents, who were all about college and Ivy League schools and the whole thing. And my peers, my cousins were, I believe, headed there already in Ivy schools. So I had some pressure there. And my mother, you know, she cried. My father was very angry. 
But I thank God they didn't stop me. They were not supportive. They did not give me $1,000. They did not say, here's a bank account. We wish you luck. The way they would have if I was in college. I was on my own. And I moved to New York City. I worked at Wendy's for the summer, saved some money, moved there. My father, thankfully, lived in on Bear Mountain, about an hour from the city. So I lived with him for six months and took the bus back and forth to, to the city. And my adventures in New York began. Because Times Square back then was prostitutes and drugs and hustlers and high, high crime. I saw people get their purses snatched, wildest picked people were being robbed. It was quite hard. And I had to go through the Port Authority, which was the big bus station of the city, which had all the riffraff at night. And I worked a job in the morning. I worked on the weekends. And I worked at night. I did only school and dance. I'm sorry, work and dance. My father got a job and had to leave New York City, leave New York. And he said, I'm leaving on Friday. Now, I think there's a ploy for him to get me to go back home because he thought if he leaves New York, what's going to happen to me? It was Monday. I'm leaving on Saturday. My son's going to have to go back home. So I went to school and was determined to stay. Got a roommate. In fact, it was four roommates. And we had a we had a sublet in the projects, an illegal sublet and with four roommates. And that's how I survived. And I ate brown rice and lentils. I was my dish. I had two different sandwiches. I had no money. I walked. I didn't take to take the train, and the train was only ninety cents a ride at that point. I mean, I really, really was the classic starving artist. And I remember specifically in Times Square. No matter what happens, I will not go back to Michigan. I will stay in New York City and be in the creative arts forever. I made a vow to myself, wow. and I'm really, really happy that it, it, it remained. Yeah. That's amazing. What are we talking about? Like late eighties? Is that kind of just yep, yeah? Okay. So the summer of eighty-five, and the other thing people might not realize is that was the peak of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And I had my friends. You know, here I was nineteen years old, coming from the small town in Michigan with the dreams of becoming a dancer. Did not know anything, any kind of street smarts. I was so naive. I was robbed and mugged, and and my friends were dying. My teachers were dying, and the African American community was decimated. For the arts. I mean, there were probably, I remember I wrote 50 names, five zero. I wrote 50 names in my journal. Friends that I lost who never saw 30. And I stopped writing names after 50. I didn't want, I stopped counting and stopped going to the more memorial services. And it was kind of like this silent thing. It, it, people would die and go and, and did, did disappear and no one would talk about it. And mm-hmm. I was ter- you know, there, I was there. I was completely a little virgin. I was like, fresh off the bus and in my sexual prime and in this building for the beautiful black bodies where I should have had time in my life and they were dying. And that had a huge impact on who I am now, a huge impact on my intimacy, huge impact on my relationships and my career. Because in my dream state, had my dream come through to go to the Ailey School, I was watching death every day. And living through this pandemic oh is very, very reminiscent of that time. Except the difference is if you get COVID, you're a victim. Back then, if you got AIDS, you were the devil. The New York Times said the gay plague were being punished Mm -hmm. for being gay. And that was really, really a horrifying time to be in New York City. So my my longevity here is a true, I literally have decided this week to celebrate because I realized... I did. My dream came true way more than one time. So we're talking about the the gay community, dancers, particularly in New York City in the late 80s, that are just your whole, just your community starts literally, 
they dropped that in front of you. They dropped it. Literally, they, they would come to, they'd come to class and they'd be half their weight and they did disappear. There were lesions, were vomiting, wow. and all, all the time. And it's actually because, it, it, you know, this whole thing about systemic racism, it's real. Back then, mm-hmm. the white gay community had a whole network. That's why the, the, the gay men's health crisis was, was, was founded by, you know, white men and they support each other. And the African-American community, because of the ridicule that we get from our, the black community, the church and the Caribbean and the African perspective on sexuality, people are in denial about it. So parents would find out their sons were gay because they were invited to their memorial service. And they'd go and see all of these people and go, well, and they find out. I mean, that was how bad it was. And it was, I don't, I've not even seen any documentaries or any stories. They may be out there. Forgive me if I don't know them. But that to talk about the impact on the African-American community. And I believe that the teachers, the directors, the producers, the writers of that would have been today, those voices have been silenced. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, there is a voice in the arts community that is not there because those people died. Wow, that's, that's a lot. Let's go 180 for a second here. And because mm-hmm. you said you were going to celebrate this week, I just want to hear a little bit about that. So you want to celebrate life. This week. Yes, because mm-hmm. you know I'm hitting I'm hitting my I'm now the chief officer of education and creative programs at the Harlem School of the Arts, and I train people to be me and to be my, to be like my peers to do what I did to travel the world as a dancer, singer, actor on Broadway, and I've been there for ten years. I built the program from the ground up when I arrived at HSA in 2011. It was three empty dance studios, 168 kids, and no teachers. So I wrote the curriculum, hired the teachers, and built this program with the community based on parent feedback. We want ballet on Tuesdays, or why are you taking hip-hop, and I want some more African classes. All that feedback, it literally became the people's program, right? Mm-hmm. And it went from 168 kids to 400 kids. And those kids, some of them are actually superstars. Caleb McLaughlin, he's got 10 million followers on Twitter. He's in the movie, there's been a couple of movies. The recent one's Conky Cowboy. He was in Stranger Things. Superstar. I met him when he was eight years old. Shadi Ray Joseph was the, is the voice of Young Nala in the Lion King movie, the, the live action movie. She was in the movie Us. Brilliantly talented teenager. Superstar. Wow. Aubrey Joseph, he's, was in the, the Cloak and Dagger series on H&M, H&M whatever it is called, H&M. So anyway, one of those one of those um, cable, cable channels. I mean, I've got eleven kids that have gone on to broadcom television. I've got dancers in Europe now and dance companies at the top companies, and that's because I took them off the playground, some of them, and brought them into the world of the arts. And I'm hitting my ten year anniversary, and it's time for me to look to see what's next, right? Yeah. And that's not even including my ten year journey with the Lion King. And also having been the last dancer chosen by Alvin Ailey before he died and having that wonderful year working with him in the company while he was still around. And at some point, you got to go, you did it. Mm-hmm. Even if your dreams don't come true, this for all our listeners, even if dreams don't come true the way you had them planned, because my dreams did not come true the way I planned. You have to still go, I am here I'm alive. I am having impact. I can change my life at any second. You have to re-engage yourself. And now that we're in these in our apartments or homes or or having to for the front workers having to go out into the pandemic and work, this is hard. We've been forced to self-reflect. It's reckoning time. We are all having a reckoning with ourselves, with our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have a reckoning. It's like, okay, what's up? Our underbellies have been exposed. 
Whatever's weak now, his weak is weaker. And you have to deal with it. Do not ignore it. Do not be afraid of it. Just be forgiven with your humanity, right? I'm human. I have maybe made mistakes and I might not be where I want to be. But you've got the power, especially in America, to change your life. I've been to over 40 countries and it's not the same way in other countries. You cannot change your life in some countries. In America, as bad as it gets, you mostly still can. We do, we do have to deal with the systemic racism and, and, and misogyny and xenophobia, all this is happening. But even at its worst, there is a doorway if you can find it. That's that's good to hear because, you know, after all this time going through COVID and, and the division in the country and you, you do think sometimes, is it still, can people still make their dream? Yeah. Dream if you're born in Westchester, that's one trajectory. No guarantee, but that is a trajectory. If you're born in the Bronx or Detroit, that's another one. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're they're that either one is, is more guaranteed to be successful or not, but there is a difference. The resources, the values, the ability for parents to parent, all that stuff is part of where you're born. Your future in America is determined partly where you're born. You come out of the womb and already there's there's either a tunnel to the prison or a tunnel to the Ivy schools. And that is, I, I know that may be controversial to say, I believe this. And unless, and because I teach kids, and you can see it, when a child is in a situation that might not be the best for them, parents are doing the best they can, no love loss for them. But obviously there are, there are parents that are, that are challenged. And I say the only way that kid's going to survive that craziness is their brilliance, right? Because if you're not brilliant and you can't imagine a world outside of your circumstances, you think your family's the world. That's the world. And it's not. So what I do with the arts is try to make sure that you give children tools by exercising the muscles of imagination to imagine a world outside of your circumstances. You are not your family. You are not where you come from. You are not your neighborhood. You are you. You can carve out and rewrite whatever story you want. It is not going to be easy if you don't have resources. It is not going to be easy if you don't have a mentor. It's not going to be easy if you're in a situation where systemic racism has put you in, a, in, a, in circumstances that are are challenging. And th- this is where people or children, young people of color in America are benefiting from the arts. Is, is Yes, yeah. I believe that. Everyone's not going to learn by memorizing and spitting out on tests. You become good at testing. There are kids that don't, don't learn that way. Thankfully, I was, able to, I was able to learn that way, and I was also creative. Sometimes, either a sports team or the arts, particularly the arts, is the difference between life and death. It gives children a chance to express, to feel worthy, to feel seen, to own gifts that are not measurable. You cannot measure someone's talent. There's, you mm-hmm. can't put it on a grid and say, here's the rubric. It does not exist. You would try to make them, it's, they don't work. It's subjective. The arts are about human to human connection. They're about knowing who you are, owning yourself. It's about looking in the mirror and loving what you see, despite what you're told about what's in the perfection. And the arts empower, break down walls, and can change the world if we let it. And even if we don't. I think the theater, as I said, I'm not making this up myself, but theater is the therapy of the masses. We go to the theater to see ourselves. We know it's not an elephant on stage. We know that that's not the king of the lions. It's a guy wearing carbon graphite to paint to be look like a lion. But if we're told that's Mufasa, we believe it. We want to believe it. We have to believe it because Mufasa's journey or Simba's journey or Nava's journey might be our journey. And I can live through that journey through someone else and be healed.
Yeah. And there's so much emphasis on for children to be in sports and they should be athletic and all that. But you're saying that the arts are equally important. I think the arts are like the air. I have a quote that I, I trademarked, actually. The arts aren't extracurricular. They're extra essential. Yeah, I like so that. I think kids should experience sports and they should experience arts as well as academics. And then with the sports and arts, they can choose which one they're going to go with. They should do one or the other for sure. Totally. And academic is an important part of their journey. But both one or the other should be a part of the equation, too. And I, you know, in the arts, the first to be cut because again, it's not measurable. You're not going to be able to raise money off of it. But can you imagine a kid sitting in a desk all day long with no creativity, reading, memorizing, spitting out multiple choice, memorize this, do that? And I think American education has failed our children. And no disrespect to teachers, I think teachers are amazing. They should be honored heroes that are paid like CEOs because they're raising the human race. But the system itself has failed them. And that's been shown by this pandemic. The disparity in communities, the, the inequities of the kids that don't have technology. What if you don't, don't have internet in your neighborhood, right? What yeah. if you're, like some of my students, you're taking your dance classes on the same phone that your brother or sister is going to college with, on the same phone that your mom or dad might be going to work with? What do you do? Mm-hmm. One phone for a family and, and, and laptops. So we have some work to do, especially when you get down to the content of what we're learning. Again, going back to systemic racism, I'm learning stories about black people I never knew. You know, a good example is the Tulsa, where they, where they 300 some people were burned, you know, were burned because of some mistaken a boy did something to a white woman and they burned down the entire neighborhood. Yeah. Why, why did they end on that in fifth grade? I think that as an adult. So we have some work to do. And where we are now is a direct result of what we've done. And rather than point fingers and say, you're wrong because you're racist. You're wrong because you're whatever. Say that, okay, we were that yesterday. Today's a new day. Now we know better. So you may have been an aunt. You, your ancestors may have enslaved mine. And my ancestors may have been your property. But now we are equal human beings. And we know that that was just a horrible past. We should own it learn about it, and move forward accordingly. And really to understand that if you're white and have resources, it might be because you have generations of that. And if you're black, on my family, my great-great-grandmothers were both slaves. So my grandmother, on my dad's side, grandmother was born a slave. So she knew a slave. It's yesterday. And so how could she possibly have had the resources to, to raise her son to become Steve Jobs? She was surviving. I mean, literally like hand to mouth, week to week, day to day surviving. So my father was the first one in, in my dad's of the family that had an education, which is also harder for me to have chosen dance. I feel a little guilty. I didn't go the academic route sometimes because I would have liked to become a scientist, but I'd love to have been a scientist now fighting the pandemic. But I think I'm doing my own warrior work and, and God's work in the community. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that, that, that pivot you made from the arts, because you, as an artist, You're you're a dancer, you are with Alvin Ailey, you're traveling around the world for Lion King and having an amazing dance career. Did something happen or is it, you know, they say like you can only dance for up to a certain age or I'm just very interested about the pivot when you leave the, the arts and, and start to train other artists. Yeah, and maybe talk about a little bit about the teaching too and how you got inspired to to make that part of your practice yeah. and your profession. I mean, I'm sure, Daniel, that you can relate that. You train as an artist and sometimes you're thinking about profession, most times you're not. And then the opportunity arrives and I thank God that I made some choices that, that set me on this journey of performance. And then life happens. 
So sometimes either you age out or you are injured or you, you know, have a change of like something happens where an artist no longer can either get work or doesn't want to work. And that can happen while you're in high school. It can happen at 50. But at some point, there's that moment of what am I going to do next? Do I continue this 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 life? And the artist life is very hard. You know, even someone like Will Smith and Angela Bassett, I'm sure they've got their stories, too. Once you become them, then you're set. But but that's very, very rare. There's one Beyonce per generation. But for the rest of us, the humans, we have to assess. And for me, it kind of happened naturally. I was told by my mentor, Barry Martin, may he rest in peace, that I should be more than a dancer. So I was always interested in acting and film and I was in art and music. So I trained in all those di- disciplines. And I did the and I got me to Broadway and I was in a movie and I was into TV shows and I was in music videos, small stuff that nobody ever saw, but I did it. <laughs> I did it. And I was in The Lion King and they asked me to help teach the show in London. And I had taken the time to write. Now, this is the chemistry mind. I had take, I had written down all the choreography of the show. I'm talking every single count. Put your right foot in parallel, bend your left knee, bend the right elbow on count one, lift the right leg on count two. I wrote it all out. Every step, every character for that two-hour show. And when it came time to teach it, that was a very valuable piece of information. And I'm very proud, just to fast forward, here we are 20, 20 some years later, when they open, they and they've just announced that Lion King will open September 21st after being closed for over a year. When they go to the first day rehearsal, they're going to open a book. And in the bottom of my corner, it says, written by Aubrey Lynch in 1996. I am so proud of that. The choreography they will do is what I wrote down 20 years ago. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. And that's why they made me the associate choreographer and the associate producer. And then I mounted 14 productions of The Lion King around the world. And that is my hard work. And I didn't, I, I did not expect that to happen. So when I came off stage for that very first, never forget it, came off stage and I was watching the show and writing, writing it down, preparing to go to London to, to teach the show in the West End. And it didn't occur to me that would be my last official performance as a, as an, as a performing artist. I then had become, without realizing it, an administrator. And I wish now that I had continued training. I don't know how I could have because I was, I was in, country traveling most of the year i was never in one place for more than a few weeks and so it would have been really hard to train and to keep my dancing up but when that journey came to an end there was some downsizing so you can imagine being at the top of the world for 10 years and the biggest show in the world i met bob Iger, i met oprah i met Tissy tyson Cindy Poitier, michael jackson i met all these people the clintons because of the lion king and then one day i'm walking in with the box with that journey was over. And I have no love lost. I'm so very close to Lion King. I, I guess they just didn't need me anymore. And I had to reinvent my life. So that did not, I didn't ask for that. And that was probably the darkest time of my life where I'm talking dark, dark, like the end of the world, like you're going to jump off a bridge kind of darkness. And I had to kind of read, who, who am I without Lion King? And I, who am I? I was defined until then in my mind by Alvin Ailey and the Lion King. I was Arby Lynch of Lion King. Arby Bailey. I was not just Arby Lynch. And I had to look in the mirror and do what I'm asking us to do that are, that are listening in the world right now. Who are you? What do you love? What inspires you? What are you afraid of? What do you really dream? What are you willing to do to get go after that dream right now? Well, I didn't have an answer to any of that. I had no idea what I wanted. I had no idea where I wanted to go. I had no idea. I had no idea. I hadn't thought about it. And shame on me for thinking that Lion King was going to be my retirement. Dummy. Dumb, dumb, dumb. So life lesson that came way too late. So I went back to dance. I went back to the Ailey school, taught a little jazz class. I was making all this money to make my little 
$79 a week and began at the beginning, but then came to find out that it wasn't the beginning. I had a world of knowledge that was very good as a teacher. I loved delivering mm-hmm. information to young people. It was a natural par- parent. My, the parent to me came out. And when I found myself at the Harlem School of the Arts, and I'll never forget it, walked in the door the first day of the, the, first day of the job, I was brought, brought there to be the director of dance musical theater. And this little beautiful girl was sitting there, a little bun in her hair, and the mother was there. And the mother said, my daughter wants to dance, dot, dot, dot. And she was looking to me for advice mm-hmm. about how to teach. And I, I mean, my eyes were up. I was so moved. And this huge responsibility came. I said, this is not about dance. It's about raising children. It's about being in partnership with parents to give mm-hmm. that child a chance at their dreams. And that was such an inspiring moment that I was he- I began to heal from my uh, departure from Lion King because of the children. I love and- that. Yep, and I went to my office and began writing out a curriculum for her. Okay, she's got ballet on Tuesday, ballet on Thursday, a little jazz on Saturday, and I began to build this program. That that young woman, she stayed with the program until she graduated high school, and the whole the whole time she was there, and she was going gorgeous dancer, but she's now an engineer on a, on a aircraft carrier. <laughs> but I know she's better and stronger because of the class and the time she had with me and her mother. And she couldn't cause to thank me. And we've, we've spoken recently. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. In any case, so I, I kind of stumbled across her. I think I was a natural educator, educator all along. I think education is not something you learn. You're either an educator or you're not. If you find yourself in an education and you are an educator, naturally you'll be a good one. And I just fell in love with helping children see themselves, to be able to say to them, you are beautiful. You are powerful. The world is yours. You just got to work hard. Mm-hmm. And when the world beats you down, stand back up again. I didn't always say it literally. I said it through the class. Stand in first position like you're a soldier. Leap as high as you can like a dragon breathing fire. You give them these images. And those images stick with them. So then we go to the interview for a job later on or for your college vacation or for whatever it may be. They are feeling beautiful and powerful. And they're feeling important. They're feeling seen. And all this drama today with this insurrection and the Biden thing and this, this craziness is because people are not feeling seen. Mm-hmm. They feel visible. They feel powerless. They feel manipulated. And they are being manipulated. We are being manipulated. You know what I mean? So they have reason to be angry. And so we have to reach them by saying, I hear you, bro. I hear you. I'm mad too. But let's not break down the freaking walls. I love these imageries that you worked with, you know, the dragon. And that pivot, that healing starts there when you realize that also giving back and paying forward in a way is what healed you started to heal you and it's when we feel healed and we're also sharing yeah. and giving back that's when when life is feels a little bit more completed no that's right and i think to be able to own the other thing that people want to try to do is own their darkness you know own their mm-hmm. sorrow own their fear own their pain it is real it's yeah. just it becomes a bad thing when you let it derail your life you have to say yeah it's i lost my job because of the pandemic yeah, my kid can't go to school because you don't have a computer. That is bad. That is hard. Yeah. And still there is a way if you keep believing and you keep 
trying to find the resources that you can. There's a way to work through that. And I wish that that was the message being drilled into us as opposed to the world's coming to an end, insurrection, and the, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like what's a fire? It is a fire. Yeah, and that really brings up this really, I one of the threads that I've kind of teased out through this whole conversation is this idea of transference, how you you sort of presented to this per, as this person with a very, like, technical sort of mind and mindset moving from chemistry into the art of dance. And you talked about how when you were tapped to choreograph the Lion King, you you were ready to sit down and write up this very technical treatment. Is that something that you were already doing in your practice as a dancer of kind of thinking about the artistic process through a system of structure? That's a very interesting question because I do think there is this whole right brain, left brain thing, the creative side versus the linear side. And some people are really heavy on the linear and they know numbers and charts and, and oh, the great project managers that have to have a plan. They can't ever improvise. It's got to be mapped out with an interest life for years in advance. And then some people can walk with them and create, right? And I have thankfully lived both. I came through my childhood as a very creative kid, but I was also near the end in high school became very, very linear. And I don't think I was a planner, but I, I exercised my left brain, that linear brain, the, the, chemical equations and being, but being able to envision how the molecules interacted was my creative brain and the problem solving brain. I think the con was common between the two sides for me is problem solving. I love a puzzle. Like when you, mm -hmm. when you are a painter, how do you express love? That's a puzzle. When you are trying to plan a map to build a tower, that is a puzzle. Right. How do you go from A to B? That's the part of my life that I've realized I've loved the most that is equal in both. And I feel, especially as an adult, I looking back, I've been ridiculed for my creative brain. I do think the world linear people, I'm going to do the, do the us against them thing for a second. <laughs> bear with me. But the linears, <laughs> the linear supremacy. You know, they're the ones who think they built the world and they plan it and they do not have much tolerance for creative people. And the creative mm -hmm. ones make it beautiful. They make it work. They they think outside the box. They move us forward like the Steve Jobs and the, those people, Bill Gates. Those creative people figure out how to get us to where we want to go. And we have to work in tandem. Some people do both. And I think I became very heavy on the creative coming from Alvin and Lion King. And I wasn't exercising that left brain. When I got back to, to Lion King and writing the book, that became very left brain. But I was still heavy in the right brain. I was super heavy. And up until recently, I... I actually became very insecure about my inability to be a true project manager. To, it, to think, okay, next year I want to have a production. How many weeks back do I have to hire the stage manager? Who does the costumes and what's that timeline? I have anxiety. My body feels stress when I have to do that. I try mm -hmm. myself to do it anyway. And I make sure you try to have people around you that are linear. But I've been shamed by linear people who are really who are good at that, who don't understand me, who don't. Yeah, I think we all have. I think all artists have. And that's why Daniel and I are building this program. Because mm. we were for so long in the arts. And when we pivoted, just for example, myself going into copywriting and marketing, I was so arty. And, you know, that was like a criticism, you know, but people threw it like it was a compliment, but it wasn't. You know, oh, you're so artistic. Yes. You're so yeah. artistic. Well, so we're so like, bad. you know what? How can we put people together and save them some of the time that we had to go through because it took me a while to figure out like, what am I going to do when I grow up? And because of this, exactly this, this is why we're, we're here right now and talking to you. 
It's absolutely net, net, net necessary. And I was just talking about this with a friend of mine over the weekend, saying that he wishes that young people as artists were trained for this moment. They were ready for the reinvention piece. If you're an artist, you got to be a chameleon. You have mm-hmm. to be everybody. Hundred percent. You got to be able to change your color depending on the room, right? And <laughs> because people will roll right over you. And but artists, hello, you got a responsibility to be ready for that moment. If you know you think out of order, if you know you don't respond to your email, if you know you don't you don't check your voicemail, you got to fix that without shaming yourself. Own the creative brain. That is your creative brain being creative. But if you want to have a life that makes money and has some kind of security, you have to awaken that left side in whatever way you see fit. You have to. It's not okay to go, I'm just creative. I'm not, I don't care about that. Well, I get that. And that's, that's kind of that self-love thing. But you have to function. And then, for example, I have a lot of friends that will let their phone change the number. If you're an artist, you you have to have the same phone number. You can't just mm-hmm. change. I want to reach yeah. you. <laughs> so, things like that. You have to try to learn how to, to format a Word document. Know what Google Forms are or Google Sheets and Google. You don't got to be an expert, but know that planning of your life is important. And don't shame yourself for not being able to do that. Find someone to help you. I shamed myself. I really have am now mm. having to retrain myself to celebrate my creative side because I've been so shamed by not being able to naturally just pop out a number and do an Excel chart. I learned it all on YouTube. I did. I can do iMovie. I can do, I can do, I can do you know, Photoshop. It was, I do all because I learned it. And then proud of myself. On YouTube. I think that artists have to do the same. Mm-hmm. If you play the violin and you want to do something else, you have to awaken that left side of your brain. And that can be as, as advanced as taking a workshop to do that. Or can you just be aware that I'm not really great at planning. My bills are a mess because my bank is a mess because I'm not a planner. You got to work on it. You got to work on it. You got to be better at it because you have to be able to function in the world that was built by linear people without being shamed yeah. yourself or being the creative side. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something around self-care a few minutes ago about, you know, talking about I'm an artist. And I think that embracing that left brain is an act of self-care because Absolutely. like when we're when we have those things taken care of. And we know that the bills are paid, the, the mortgage is paid. We have food in the bank and the food, or uh, we have money in the bank, food in the fridge. <laughs> we can actually put our whole self into our creative work and make something what? that yes. something great that's not being undermined by anxiety and fear and or self judgment and shame. Right? It's yeah. a great point. If you do the work, that left yes. brain work, and plan your life, you are free to be creative. And that give, takes away the anxiety that you're being creative and you're missing something else that you've not done. That's not easy. It's not natural for creative people. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. But if you can, those people are free to create. Have planning time and work time. And then your, your creative time is your creative time. And make sure that you support equally, support them both equally. That's such a good point. And it takes us a while. You know, I feel like it took me a while to figure that out. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people like, yeah, I didn't even realize left frame right. It didn't occur to me until I'm a full on adult mm-hmm. that there is that, that there, this is an issue. But it is about knowing, first of all, that if you find yourself really good at designing or singing or acting, chances are you're very, very creative, heavy in the right brain. And that might mean, not for everybody, but it might mean that paying your bills, doing email and returning phone calls and doing your calendar might not be as great. There are people that do both. They don't usually come together. Yeah. And there are people that are linear, 
that actually get afraid to step outside the box. Our linear yeah. friends, and if you're linear and happen to also be creative, the fear of not having a plan can be debilitating. You got to own because creative people do have that side too. You yeah. got to own both. But I think the part of healing and self care is self awareness. Know that it's there. Know yourself and begin to own the parts of yourself that make you the fragile human that we all are. That's like the word procrastination, the fear of having a plan. It's like, you know, you, you, you don't even procrastinate. You don't get started. I've done I'm a victim of that. I mean, I've been writing a book for 10 years. It's exciting. Yeah, it's almost done. The proposal almost done. But it's that last bit. To, okay, it's ready. It's hard for artists. Really hard. It is. So I have a couple more questions for you. And you kind of already hit on this around hindsight being 2020 and knowing yourself. Is there something that you could, you wish you could go back and tell young Aubrey who's just getting started and like something that would have helped him on his journey to be more prepared for all of the unknowns, the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns of working in the art industry? Every time someone asks me that question, my eyes will up because I, I feel so sad sometimes that that little boy went through so much and mm-hmm. a lot of people self-inflicted. I would tell him, don't take it so seriously. You know, depend on your talent, work hard, but don't be so hard on yourself. You're not going to get any wars by shaming yourself and cursing yourself and being mad at yourself. Can I stutter? I talk really fast and I think out of order I've got like ADHD off the chart and that made my I was bullied called sissy pansy all that stuff right that we all go through I would say yeah it's going to be rough you're going to have some really dark times but keep believing and remain optimistic if you if you just believe in your talent and you get the training things tend to happen in your favor and when things don't go your way, don't just be willing to be the chameleon. And maybe that's not going to be your, that's either not your gift or it's not the direction that's meant, meant for you. And I'd say it's going to be okay. I spent most of my life worrying about having fear. Fear is just, it's, it's anxiety that will, it's, it's thinking of things that will likely never manifest. And even if the worst thing happened, the, the worst thing can make happen, you'll get through that too. You will get through it. And yeah, I I think that's it. Don't take things so seriously. Believe in your talent. Depend on your talent. And don't spend your life worrying about what things you can't change. And I'm doing that right now. I literally am having anxiety about some things that are coming up. Things I I have no control over. So, and I've not learned how to not worry about those things. So it's Mm -hmm. it's not, what I'm suggesting is not easy. And I would tell him that you may not be successful, but just know that you're going to make it. And even if you don't land where you want to land, you're going to land on your feet and it'll be as beautiful as power and fulfilling as long as you stay true to what you love to do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's some of the stuff that came out right there is what you are already kind of implementing in your curriculum or with your student, the language you use with them. Yeah, no, because I lived it. And I think that yeah. people good at that have been through the, through the darkest. I've been mm-hmm. through the darkest. I've been in therapy since I was 20. I had a therapist, so I had to, because getting through that AIDS epidemic was really, really hard for me. And I, I never caught the disease, but I mean, there was two years where I could swear, I could swear that I had it, right? And so I had crisis counseling. And when I realized that I was, you know, a negative, I didn't have the disease, I was given this whole like license on life. It was like kind of a rite of passage almost back then. And, but I kept the therapy going. And so going through trying to ask those questions about why do I do this and what's behind that and where does this come from? It, that, that really hard work with therapy, which I highly recommend if you're ready for it, really helped me see life from a higher perspective. 
and made me the kind of problem solver of life. And that's why I became a certified life coach. And this is the language I use with my former clients with the kids is I've been through the darkness and I have, I have looked the devil in the eye. I know that I have. And I was able to still see light. And because of that, I want to make sure people of all ages get that. The devil, whatever you perceive the devil to be, I don't mean literally, I mean the, the, the metaphorically, when he or she arrives and stares you in the face, you want to be able to see light. That the beauty, the power, your wisdom within you is the light that will outshine and he will evaporate in front of you if you believe that. And a lot of us don't believe that. A lot of us have circumstances. I can see why they don't believe that. Things have happened in their lives that make it impossible to see that. Still, I urge people to find the light in yourself and know that it's bright enough to outshine any darkness. Yeah, that's powerful. So you mentioned that you've been working on a book and I know you have some things coming up. What gets you excited about the work today where we're at here in spring 2021? Yeah, I think what's amazing is that the pandemic has given us an opportunity to reinvent. It really is, because no one's going to judge anybody for doing something crazy this year (laughs) or last year. (laughs) You want to try something new? Now's the time. No one's going to judge you because the world has gone literally bonkers. Next year, we might be back to some kind of whatever. But this year, go for it. So I'm looking at my life going, what do you really want to do, Aubrey? What do you want to do? What's possible now? All these big life coach questions. I don't have the answers yet. I'm open to the answers. I'm asking the questions. And in terms of the children and education, the pandemic has revealed that we have to give back to our communities. There is a whole generation of kids who are going to be missing a year and a half, maybe two years of their human development, right? They are not the same humans as people that have had that. And so in 20 years when they're running the ship, they will be missing a piece of that. It's incumbent upon all adults to turn their focus there and make sure that those kids have the resources they need to get back on their feet, especially those undeserved, I mean, the, the kids who have come from communities that have a lack of resources, especially kids of color who are seeing the insurrection, seeing the talk, the talks about white supremacy, they're seeing and they're taking it in and it's going to, it may affect them and their decision-making and their judgment and their self-confidence. So we have to be very creative how to address that. And I'm looking forward to that. To being able to say, what can I do in the year FY22 to purposefully impact kids who have been impacted by this craziness? Yeah. And so on that, how would you suggest that we give back to the community? Well, I think you want to go start with your neighborhood organizations, with, with any organization that's supporting people, whether that's a community center or an art school or an education center, whatever it is that inspires you, make sure the kids near you in your neighborhood are getting that. That's where Mm -hmm. you start is in your neighborhood and in your families. Listen to educators, what they need. Listen to art leaders, what they're talking about. And you'll hear things like donating money, donating services in in, in kind. And who you vote for actually has a big impact. So you want to turn your mind towards what are the politicians saying? Who is talking about servicing the community and servicing these kids? Who is talking about those programs that are for your community and make sure the person you're voting for them. So those are very simple things you you, you you can do. And even simpler on the most basic level is be aware. Open your eyes, be aware that this is what's happening. Just by seeing yeah. the world and seeing for what's really going on, don't be distracted by all the news and all the propaganda. But what is happening to people? How we're turning against one another. We're repeating it all over again. We've been here before. 
What can I do? What am I doing to contribute to the madness? And what can I do personally in my life right now to impact it so that it doesn't happen? So that I'm not going to perpetuate that disease, which is in your language. It's in your thinking. In what ways am I supporting systemic racism or systemic misogyny? How am I going to change that for people? Who can I talk to to ask the questions for about more, more information? Being curious. It starts within yourself. People want, to, what can I do? It doesn't always mean giving an organization money. Although that's one way to do it, right? It also is about looking in the mirror, owning your beauty, owning your darkness, and saying, what am I doing to impact the world negatively and impact it positively on a daily basis? If we all did just that, the world would change in an instant. Because we'd be aware, okay, I actually do cause some problems. I actually do cause drama. I should do, I'm very, I, I get triggered here, triggered there. I should do, like, to stir up the drama. These these things we, we do, I need attention, so I make loud noises. If you can own that part of yourself, either by yourself or through therapy, I think you can impact the world in a profound way. Yeah. Yeah, one thing you can do if you're listening, if you have the resources or you're in the neighborhood or even if you're not, is to go to hsanyc.org to visit the Harlem School of the Art. It's a beautiful school. We, we have dance, theater, visual arts, and music. We serve thousands of kids in the building. It's not an academic school. And we have programs that are teaching kids to not just act, sing, and dance, but to be people. Right? The life lessons that go along with the arts classes are as critical as the how high you can jump or how high you can sing. And support them. Support us. And support arts organizations. Support organizations that, that support kids. And that's, we're at HSA NYC everywhere, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can see our beautiful pictures and our, our videos. And yeah, be aware that helping is about being aware and knowing about these organizations like ours. Right. And are you guys going to go full in person in fall? Yeah, we are going in person starting the summer. We've got a, a summer program. It's all social distance, so we're really restricted by the number of kids we can fit in a room, which is mm-hmm. going to impact us financially terribly. But we're in person. We're going to give it a go. We're not back in the office until around June. And then the fall will be in person, full program, and it'll be social distance and strict CDC guidelines. But we know that kids are going to be better and healthier in a community experience. And our dance, the dance world has been decimated. And trying to be trained as a dancer in your living room is just horrible. Yeah. And if you're a child and our kids have become depressed and they've anxiety, a couple of them have just quit dancing altogether. Some parents didn't bring their kids to train at all because it's hard. And Mm -hmm. the isolation and the mental illness is the other epidemic. And at some point, we're going to have to address the impact of wellness and the importance of wellness. And mental illness is going to be a big issue now. And most of us have no idea how to deal with it. We don't acknowledge it. We can't talk about it. And no, you're not crazy if you're depressed. No, you're not crazy if you have anxiety. You're not crazy. You have reason to be. (laughs) Good reason. It becomes a problem if you feel it derailing your life. And if it does, have to ask for help. And I don't think people are going to do that. So we're going to be clever about how we provide those services for for our parents and for educators, for the community. You know, there are people that are politicians that have no idea how to deal with mental illness or even how to talk about it. And yeah. once you can't be shamed for your ADHD or <laughs> whatever it is, you can't yeah. be, but we shame people. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a little bit of a shift in that, that we're being more transparent now and accepting of? Yeah, I think people are open to it, but 
we have a long way to go. We think yeah. about kind of things people are fighting about now and the lies you're being told by our, our leaders. It's horrifying. You know, mm-hmm. how who can determine what the truth is anymore? Where where can you go go and get the truth? You there's not one place to depository. It's only our own discernment and judgment that would that will determine what our truth is. And left to that, that's a scary world. That being said, yes, it's all getting better little by little every day. You know, we're wondering <laughs> how far we go, how far we gotta gotta go, but it's getting better. At least we're talking about it. You know, I'm talking about it. And yeah. people are listening about it right now. So for us, it's better. Well, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today. It's just been a it's just a treat to have you and inspiring and to hear about your story. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you asking me here and I appreciate the questions, the conversation and to everyone listening, you know, keep believing. Keep believing in the light and keep believing in you. It sounds cliche, but you have to. That's what you gotta do. The Artist Inclusive Podcast is brought to you by the Artist Inclusive Facebook group and artistinclusive.com. Learn more about Artist Inclusive at our website or join our free Facebook group. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share this message with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast. This is how you're able to reach more engaged and impactful artists just like you.